What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Stephanie Stein Kreese to discuss her book, Rhythm Man, Chick Webb and the Beat That Changed America. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Stephanie Stein Kreese, the author of Rhythm Man, Chick Webb, and the Beat that Changed America. Stephanie, welcome to the show. I'm really delighted to be here, um, and I know um, you also talked to Jeff Kaufman a few months ago, and he the, was the director and producer of the wonderful documentary about Chick that came out a few years ago. So, and uh, as you can imagine, in the course of my research, I actually talked to him quite a bit, too. Yeah, it's it's a great uh, great movie, and I really enjoyed your book. And and Chick Webb's just somebody I think that deserves the extra attention. He was one of the architects of American swing music, and since he died so young in 1939, um, he's kind of been overshadowed by some of his contemporaries: Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, you know, uh, uh, Benny Goodman, Archie Shaw, so many others. Um, but he really was one of the prime architects of what you call the beat that changed America. Justify that title. How was swing the beat that changed America? Well, you know, again, I kind of um, swing, you know, um, as I know you've done a lot of talking to all kinds of people in your research. To me, Chick was really foundational to what we think of as the, the swing era. But, you know, along with some of the other great black bands of his day, including Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, um, Cab Calloway, Count Basie's fame came up a little bit later, you know, um, at, but I think the other thing we have to remember in context is Chick actually, you know, started his career um, earlier, you know, kind of out of the Baltimore fabulous musical, very fertile scene that was more like ragtime and orchestrated ragtime, you know, these little dance bands that would play in a variety of places. And then he moved to Harlem during, um, you know, the height of the Harlem Renaissance when, you know, jazz wasn't even quite being called jazz yet, but but that the music that people like Duke Ellington and his band and Fletcher Henderson and all these you know bands in New York 
we're playing with kind of pre-swing, but headed, you know, as we get towards the 30s, the beat was shifting from what I think of as more of a Charleston type two-step or a medium foxtrot into kind of a forward-moving propulsive thing that Ellington, of course, personifies with, if you can't, you know, don't mean a thing if you can't do that swing. <laughs> and Webb, <laughs> as a drummer, you know, he really... Uh, crafted the sound uh, with his band that just, I think, is so emblematic of the music that we know of as great swing music of the swing era. And he did that, of course, not by himself, but with a band that he really had started, um, thanks to Duke Ellington, in in uh, probably around 1926-27 but as time went on these bands you know grew bigger you know so they went from five or eight pieces to 10 to 12 pieces and then by the time we really think of it here we are this is really swing swing music as played for the zillions of dancers that went to the Savoy Ballroom and other places um you know like 15 to 17 piece big bands so kick was I, I, we have to keep in mind that his music was totally in sync with dancing, um, and that it's hard to it's hard to remember that today. You know that these things were intertwined. The evolution of the great Lindy Hop, you know, um, and and you know that was also called the Jitterbug in, by white dancers, but also other dancers. Um, and the music we think of that, I want to say, the big white bands modeled themselves on Chick's arrangements and Ellington's and Fletcher Henderson's and a host of others. So he was really in there at the beginning of that. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, we'd done a previous episode talking to Jeff Kaufman, the director of the Savoy King, the Chick Webb and the music that changed America. And so there's some big elements to the Chick Webb story that we covered a lot in that episode. I'm just going to reference them right here quickly, and then you you brought so many other topics to bear that I want to talk about. But the most obvious thing about Chick Webb was his health difficulties. He had spinal tuberculosis, and he only achieved a height of about four feet tall. He was hunchbacked and in a lot of pain through his life, and he, and he ended up dying quite young in 1939. But your research actually showed that he was older than, than had previously thought, that his death certificate said he was born in 1909. He was actually born in 1905. How did you figure that out? Right. Well, I did a lot of, you know, one of the biggest challenges of writing this book is unlike, um, you know, Duke Ellington, there's a collection at the Smithsonian, at the Library of Congress, at, you know, many institutions. Ella Fitzgerald kicks wonderful hire <laughs> when she was a young teenager. You know, there's Ella left scrapbooks, notebooks, address books, you know, just so much of her personal life can be traced through what she herself kept. So Chick, you know, a lot of stuff disappeared um, as, you know, his uh, the family home in Baltimore changed hands a few times. Memorabilia, you know, has not surfaced in a big chunk. So, but the one thing I could do was corroborate uh, some city records. So um, through the Maryland Genealogical Society and what used to be called the Maryland Historical uh, Historical Society, which is now has a different name, Maryland Center for Culture. And um, so I was able to find what was called his certificate of a birth, which is actually 1905. And he was born at home to William Henry Webb Sr. and his mother, Marie. And, um, and that date was corroborated by census, city census records that um, listed the, you know, so the big federal census of 1910 actually lists Webb's, Webb's you know, the children of the household, their, their ages correctly. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, there, as you can imagine, in many um, communities of color, and, you know, even impoverished communities in urban centers across America in the early 1900s, all these records were filled in by hand. There was a lot of room for error, but all the census records I was able to track during Webb's time in Baltimore really listed, corroborate his age. So 
I, it, it's still a mystery to me. How come his death certificate has the wrong date? And not only does that have the, the, the wrong birth year, but that ended up being inscribed on his memorial tombstone at Arbutus uh, Memorial Park in Baltimore, where he is buried in this, this beautiful grave marker um, that was, you know, has a drum, you know, a picture of a drum on it. And it was, you know, kind of um, ordered by his wife, you know, uh, commissioned by his wife. So it's one of those things that really has been perpetuated. But I, somewhere along the line in my research, I thought somebody else had kind of come upon this paperwork, too. So, I, you know, sometimes when you do these kind of biographies, it really is a lot of, well, you know, this more seems likely that he was born in 1905 and not in several other dates that were sort of in older jazz reference works. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Chick Webb. This is Harlem Congo, and this is uh, one of his, He, for someone as famous as a great drummer as he was, he recorded very few drum solos. This is one of the few extant ones, and it's a hot one, Harlem Congo. Chick Webb tearing it up on Harlem Congo. And another, and this isn't quite a myth that you debunked, but this is a, a family story that you couldn't find any evidence for. The, the The story had been that that Chick, when he was very young, six or seven years old, had been on the steps of his uh, family brownstone waiting for his grandmother to come home and fell down the steps and, and severely injured his back. And that's what led to his spinal tuberculosis. But you found no evidence for that. And there's really no reason to believe that something like that would trigger spinal tuberculosis. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, there's so much family lore um, that, that you know, tells that story. Some of the side men tell that story, but medically, you know, and he may very well have injured his back running down the stairs to meet his grandparents. But um, but spinal tuberculosis is a bacteria. It comes, <laughs> it's a, a rare form of tuberculosis. He may have contracted tuberculosis that turned into the this, you know, they're both terrible diseases. And we have to remember Baltimore had rampant um, tuberculosis uh, epidemic in the 1900s during childhood. So did other urban cities too. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's not unusual that he would have, uh, that he would have gotten sick. A lot of, of many, many people were getting sick and uh, the disease did not, <laughs> I, I want to say, discriminate, you know, people all over the country and especially in urban centers um, were afflicted with tuberculosis. And and the other thing that's so sad, I mean, as you, you've read the book there, you know, there's so many amazing things that Chick just, I, I want to say he would, you know, yes, he had these is, you know, kind of, it was a chronic disease in the same way other things are dormant, you know, but at a certain point, um, he did have medical care. As I, I point out in the book, there was quite a, a pioneering African-American physician, Ralph J. Young, who had a clinic in the neighborhood, who probably made house calls, who then also cared for Chick when Chick was a famous musician. Dr. Young uh, had uh, was one of the few Black physicians who was able to get uh, permission to practice at Hopkins, which was a, quite a big deal in those days, even though Hopkins, you know, really prided itself on um, you know, doing things for, you know, underserved communities and had clinics in 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 Baltimore for um, black citizens. So, you know, it's kind of a long story. But um, what what I can't figure, I know he was, you know, probably his nickname was Chick Webb. The family always called him William. And um, and Chick was kind of a slur on, you know, he, he probably walked a little funny. From what I could gather, he school was not a high priority. Uh, he was I did find that he was registered in elementary school, 
but he did not go to any of these, you know, Baltimore had a couple of really quite um, uh, impressive, um, though segregated, fabulous high schools and middle schools, um, both on the east side of town and on the west side of town, you know, where some really storied musicians came out of Frederick Douglass High School, um, including Ann Wiggins Brown, who was a soprano, who was handpicked by George Gershwin to be the first best. You know, um, the Callaway family uh, were a big, big musical family in, in Baltimore. Um, and, you know, kind of Blanche Callaway really was part of, I want to say, the great musicians' migration, you know, who followed the beacon of, of others to just seek more work, seek better work. Um, she was a singer who had already made a name for herself in church concerts and school concerts and went on one of the touring shows for Shuffle Along and, you know, kind of migrated to Chicago where she became a big star there. And it's just interesting to me. I delineate in the book quite a bit how the Callaways end up intersecting with Chick in Harlem a few years later. And one of the beautiful things I, I found, you know, which I really didn't know about, uh, was uh, early on, Chick was involved in these band battles, you know, which were really for show, you know, like cutting contests to the to the max. And, and uh, in the fall of 31, Chick's band, which would really kind of had a name for itself in Harlem. At that point, they might have had 10 musicians. Blanche Calloway was leading her own band. Uh, the Benny Moten Band, uh, still known as Benny Moten Band, with the young William Basie on piano, um, and um, a couple of other lesser-known bands, um, went on a five-band battle of music tour <laughs> for about six weeks in in uh, the fall of 1931. And of course, uh, Blanche Calloway was such a, you know, sensation to, you know, watch and look at and so forth. When any of the reviews I managed to pick up, she, she like outshone everybody. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. It's amazing to me. Yeah, it's interesting to me how much Cab Calloway, her brother has overshadowed Blanche historically. Right, right. Uh, she, she, but she was was apparently as charismatic and dynamic a performer as he was and, and early on just as successful as he was. But one thing that you brought out that I that I didn't talk to you about with Jeff Kaufman was the vibrant Baltimore musical scene and the number of talent. It wasn't just the Callaways and Chick Webb and, and Chick's buddy and guitarist John Trueheart who left for Harlem, but uh, you know, and you mentioned Shuffle Along, the, the first uh, African-American mainstream Broadway hit by U.B. Um, Blake. But U.B. Blake was probably the pioneer of, of leaving the Baltimore scene to go to New York. And Steph tells me it's time to cue again. So I want to play a song. And this is called Down Home Rag. And this is a song that okay. you that you point out as a transition piece from the kind of music that people like James Reese Europe uh, and U.B. Blake had been playing in the teens. And, and this show's what Chick Webb and his group were able to do to evolve it towards jazz. This is Chick Webb and his orchestra doing the Down Home Rag. And that was Chick Webb and company doing the down home rag. And can you elaborate a little bit? Like what was the music of the teens and twenties and, and, and how did it evolve into jazz? What changed that made it jazz as, as opposed to what came before? Well, again, um, this is, I, I think we can't underestimate how major a figure UB Blake <laughs> was in all of this. Um, Baltimore, as far as, you know, in my research, was really uh, uh, a ragtime center in its own way, uh, with a bevy of pianists 
to have their own cutting concept before, you know, before there was, you know, um, apparently that that was really a thing to do. And um, UB was kind of a star of that scene. He'd come up as a young boy uh, performing in one of one of Baltimore's most famous um uh, houses of the night. I don't know what's the best way to describe these anymore. Uh, the right I think word. That'll work. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also at the Goldfield Hotel, which became, you know, kind of the biggest, one of the biggest, most glamorous black and tan places where, you know, even in this starkly uh, Jim Crow city, you know, black and white um, attendees could go to Goldfields Bar and UB Blake also played there. Um, and UB moved to New York. He was hired by James Reese Europe as an assistant. And this is, we're talking pre-World War One, And because um, UB had made a little name for himself on, you know, kind of on uh, a, a a cabaret circuit, but also, you know, uh, white venues working their way up the South, you know, resort towns, Asbury Park in New Jersey, but also, um, you know, some of the white resort towns, you know, so he was, he was catering to a different audience. And I do want to point out, uh, because it's been pointed out to me, it's like Shuffle Along was, was, unusual because it really got over to all kinds of audiences. And on Broadway, the theater where it was located, this wasn't at the time in the Times Square zone that we know of, but more like, oh, I think it was around 62nd Street where there were some other clubs and old scene in Manhattan. So, um, and there had been, you know, black musicals, or maybe you wouldn't quite call them musicals, more like operettas, um, in Dahomey and Clorindy, the origins of the cakewalk, you know, so, so all of that was fomenting in a black arts scene, a black theatrical scene, James Reese Europe and some others congregated um, in uh, a hotel, I think, in what's called the San Juan Hill District of New York around what is now Lincoln Center, you know, so there was, you know, there was kind of a ripe uh, environment. Um, and James Reese Europe, I think also he's so, uh, oops, can you still hear me? Yeah, you go on. Oh, sorry, something, something again. Um, you know, that kind of, you know, with an intellectual, intellectuals hung out together, songwriters hung out together. So, you know, this was the scene that UB Blake walked into when he moved to New York in a, right around uh, before World War One. And again, I can't tell you how uh, <laughs> it's almost a terrible feeling of jealousy. Almost. I went to see th there's a fabulous UB Blake collection at what is now the, uh, the Maryland Center for Culture and History um, that, you know, the family brought it there. So there were like 37 boxes full of stuff and letters from UB to James Reese Europe, who was over in Europe with the, you know, his fabulous 369th, um, hell, uh, with the Harlem Hell, <laughs> the Harlem Hell Fighters, you know, so these regiment bands. So all of that, you know, kind of is part of what we think of as, you know, the development towards towards what we call jazz, you know, syncopated, ragtime, orchestrated tunes. Um, you know, uh, there was a fabulous drummer that worked with James Reese Europe, um, Buddy Gilmore, you know, so we also have to think of Chick as, as an, you know, early innovator on the drum set. Buddy Gilmore was a little earlier on, you know, when the drum set actually was narrowed down to a one person playing all these different percussion instruments and, you know, kind of perfecting their own uh, foot pedals and cymbal stands, you know, it's a lot of this is uh, the instrument for tinkerers and inventors. Um, so all of that, you know, kind of, I think you really have to go back and listen to some of this music, which you can find. I mean, that was what I really couldn't find recordings of some of these early 
Baltimore bands, but you can hear UB Blake's recordings from, you know, the early 20th, you know, early 20th century around pre-World War One. You can hear uh, uh, James Reese Europe and his Castle Orchestra. So when we heard that down to home rag, to me, it was just kind of a wonderful recycling of some of these early jazz music, early, you know, orchestrated ragtime transferred to the orchestra of, you know, kind of swinging by, by Chick Webb. And, you know, I think uh, like other great band leaders of the time, he, he got his hands on every arrangement he could get. He tried to hire the best arrangers because one of the keys to becoming who he became as a band leader was just trying to craft a sound that was different than anybody else's. Yeah, and, and an arranger is kind of something we don't think about as much today, but it was a very important part of, of music in the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s. And that's essentially right. the person who wrote the sheet music uh, down so that the saxophone section knew what to play, so the trumpet section knew what to right. play, so the trombones knew what to play, so that the different horn exactly. sections wouldn't step on each other. And there was room for right. everybody, and, and it made a big impact. And it's also, you bring up the drum kit, and that's another one of our sort of habitual topics on let it roll and frequently we're talking about the technology of drum machines or mm -hmm. new ways of recording drums and the drum kit in the early part of the 20th century that was the 808 uh, drum machine of its day this was very much yeah. a technological <laughs> advance and somebody like right. chick webb and we also think of i think live music and dance music is two different things and that's been true right. since the disco era of the 70s but we got to remember in the 20s 30s uh, the Chick Webb era, live musicians were essential for dancing. If you wanted to dance, you had to have a live band, and therefore the, the live bands were much closer to the heart of the music because they were driving the dancers. They were seeing what the dancers were responding to. And so somebody like Chick Webb was able to sculpt his music based on, frankly, the greatest uh, dance troupe on earth at that point in time okay. at, at the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Right. But we, but we talk about the Savoy a lot Um with Mr. Coffin. So I want to kind of talk a little bit more. I want to mention just a couple names. I don't want to ask you about them. I just want to mention them because these are people yeah. I learned about in your book that I hadn't. But there's a guy named Percy Glasgow, who is a band leader out of right. Baltimore. Right, right, right. And, 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 and I, I, one thing I just want to, just getting back to what you said, just said, and I'll, I'll keep it brief, but let's not let's put it this way it was also a matter of survival <laughs> as a musician and a band leader to play a place like the Savoy Ballroom or any of the other you know kind of dance halls however small big or elaborate or you know uh, whatever um, you had to give the audience what they wanted or forget it. You don't have a job. <laughs> so when Chick really became ensconced at the ballroom, it really, it didn't happen overnight. It really took him a few years. And then that's the place that he was mostly identified with. But um, anyway, uh, he, yeah, and, you know, he played a lot of other places. And I'm glad you brought that point up because um, for me, you know, going back and back in this history, We've got this definition of jazz, and we think of jazz as this art music. You know, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and others took jazz into smaller venues, took it away from dancing, and made it an, an artistic statement, which was an important part of our American cultural evolution. But at the same time, I think it's much more helpful to think of Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald as what they were, which was dance music and pop music makers. That it, it just happened to have the seeds from which, you know, bebop and other, I mean, direct antecedent of bebop. But it's just as much a direct antecedent of R&B and rock and roll. I mean, Louis Jordan himself oh, totally. yeah. played yeah. Uh, with Chick Webb. And, right. you know, that's um, it kind of been one of my whole reasons for extending this series. I started the series with the rock historian Ed Ward, mm -hmm. who, good friend of mine, the late great Ed Ward, uh, we revere his memory, but he really didn't like jazz. And so he kind of wrote <laughs> jazz out of the history of rock and roll. And that's been driving oh, me crazy. Right. And I've been trying to rectify that ever since. But Chick Webb oh, is well, definitely... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you, even if you listen to some of the things uh, with Ella, they really have like a shuffle, a little backbeat, a little shuffle. You can hear it head towards this is, you know, 
uh, even before Louis Jordan forms his own thing, you know, on uh, even on their famous breakout hit, Atiska Detaskin, you can really hear it more like a backbeat and a shuffle. It's really rocking back and forth. Uh, she's got spoken word, there's call and response. You know, it's just, you can really hear how that tune was so turned the country upside down. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so catchy. It's so, it's so buoyant. You know, it's just, I know a, a lot of people, you know, one of the reasons, you know, it's complicated, but I kind of think Chick had kind of gone out of favor in a way with a certain a uh, bunch of, you know, people who wrote about jazz or jazz historians because they didn't take that kind of music serious, seriously. It was, you know, novelty tunes. But to me, the 30s was full of people doing novelty tunes, you know, uh, from black bands and white bands. But I kind of think Chick and Ella just, they really forged a style that was so irresistible almost, you know, not all of it is great, you know, some of it is better than others, but, but you really hear how the, the beat is shifting, how, um, you know, to, to, on, on some, on some of the material they did, it's almost like you, you hear the roots of rhythm and blues and rock and roll right there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Chick has probably been downgraded because he was, you know, jazz historians are looking for these expansive solos yeah. and the seeds right, right, of right. bebop, which, which, like we said, Chick definitely was an influence, definitely an overwhelming influence on the right. on the bebop generation of drummers. But to me, he's so much more in the center of the American pop mainstream. And this is a period yeah. when Louis Armstrong was having pop hits as well, right. and a, a period when Bing Crosby was was a leading jazz singer. I mean, it was a very different era, and I think I think it it's helpful. And I think we're finally getting the perspective where we can try to judge this music on its own merits for what it was at its own time, rather than, you know, judging it purely as whether or not it's something that leads us to Wynton Marsalis or. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, my, and totally my sentiment. <laughs> yeah, but let's take a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, Chick and Ella and Ella Fitzgerald. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stephen Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. (laughs) 
and so another another aspect of of the Chick Webb story that I think you brought out a bit more than than uh, Jeff Kaufman was able to in his documentary, and that's the thing, the difference between a book and a documentary. You know, you spend an hour and a half with the documentary. I, I probably spent ten or fifteen hours with your book, so you can go into much more detail. But right. Chick really struggled to establish himself in New York, and and uh, his, right. his his friend John Trueheart, who's just one of the absolute sort of I call these people dark stars, people who were obscured by the the bright lights that surrounded him. So someone like John Hart, Juhart, who was you know one of the great rhythm guitarists and Chick's right hand man, is completely. You know, we hear about Chick Webb, we hear about Ella Fitzgerald, we forget John Juhart. But Chick and John Juhart are very young men. They move to Harlem and they struggle for quite a bit of time. And uh, do you remember the story about the band leader Edgar Dow, who who didn't even want to? Oh be a- yes. Can you tell yeah. us that story? It's, it's a great, great <laughs> so again, story. Um, Ed- Edgar Dowell was um, another Baltimorean. He was um, a pianist and a songwriter. He was a little bit younger than Yubi Blake. And I did find some quotes from Yubi, you know, saying, uh, you know, Edgar Dowell, he not only beat me in a cutting contest on piano, but then he stole my girlfriend. You know, so, so uh, you know, these, these people kind of come out of the same world. And he, too, kind of made his way up to, you know, kind of through the resort towns between Baltimore, D.C., Philly, up the Jersey Shore. You know, there were jobs for uh, black musicians. Um, in the summertime at some at some of these places. And but I think uh, he also I can't quite remember what year he moved to New York, but a, a little a little later than Yubi, I think it was after World War One. And he kind of got in with the crowd who were early on involved with music publishing, songwriting, um, you know, the, the birth of what Shuffle Along helped create was sort of this birth of, you know, kind of black reviews. So cabaret shows that had, you know, chorus lines, songs, comedians, you know, what we think of as the better, you know, the better side of of vaudeville and, you know, kind of the um, taking some of the talented people who moved to New York or, or were already here, you know, it kind of did create a lot of opportunity, but it was still completely competitive and cutthroat. So Edgar Dowell was kind of doing okay. He'd actually contributed a couple of songs to some of UB's shows. He'd had some crossover hits that were, you know, Charleston that were picked up by some of the white dance bands. And he had a little dance band of his own. And the story goes, they were playing uh, somewhere and, um, and Chick knew, Oh, Bobby Stark, this great trumpet player who played with Chick and played with Fletcher, you know, later on, was part of that band. And by then, Chick was already, you know, uh, I want to say a fixture in Harlem on the jam session scene, somebody who was, you know, kind of a man on the street, uh, really extrovert, really tried to befriend everybody. You know, uh, he wasn't quite the musical force to be reckoned with that he would become, but people knew who he was. So um, I think Bobby Stark said, oh, we're auditioning at some place with Edgar Dallas band. Why don't you just come along? And apparently um, the drummer never showed up. And the cl- and so Chick fortunately was there and managed to sub. And then uh, and the club owner was so entranced with Chick's playing, he's like, well, you can have the gig, but only if this guy is the drummer. So that became one of his, you know, kind of first halfway steady gigs for a few months before he was a band leader, and he was able to get John Trueheart also, uh, you know, uh, a job with the band, with Dowell. And uh, as far as I could tell, you know, this is the hard part, because you know, be, before you're famous, <laughs> as a sideman, you don't really get your name listed. You know, I part of my research was like combing through zillions of newspaper ads, of black newspapers, you know, the famous historical black newspapers like the Afro, New York, the Amsterdam News, you know, and other, other people who, you know, really wrote a lot about entertainment and musical scene and the club scene, all these cities. So, you know, Chick, you don't really see his name showing up until um, or I couldn't, I mean, maybe somebody else can. <laughs> I finally see his name in print 
um, in like 1927 when um, his band is called the Harlem Stompers and they were already playing a little bit at the Savoy uh, here and there. And so one of the ads I found was Chick gets to go back to Baltimore. So there's an ad in the Afro, a beautiful photograph of the band at the Savoy Ballroom when it looked you know, it's like, it looks really different in the 20s. It was opened in 1926. So you see the photographs and the curtains over there. It's still two band stands next to each other. So, you know, one band would get tired, the other one would start, which is the thing in itself, you know. And and the curtains were like very, you know, have curlicues and flower decorations and stuff. And then, you know, 10 years later, when you see the ballroom, it has more streamlined, those curved wooden panels, which actually help as amplifiers. But John's true heart. So, so there's an ad, you know, you see the band and it's Chick Revenue's Harlem Stompers straight from the Savoy Ballroom. And, and, and they single out and, you know, our Baltimore boys, Chick Webb and John Trueheart finally coming home and their name, they're the headliner and the people that they had probably worked for, including Percy Glasgow, were like, their names were in small type. So <laughs> I kind of love, that's the kind of stuff that just, yes. Those are the details that helped me kind of stitch together this story. Yeah. And back to, you know. <laughs> so. and, and, and it's fun stuff. And Chick is just one of these figures that you just have to root for Chick. Um, yeah. It seems like nobody had a bad thing to say about him, that he never did anybody wrong. And, and well, you know, I, I, I don't want to totally, you know. Not a um, saint. <laughs> what some people say, and but just um, I want to say something more about True Heart. They were totally best friends. It sounds like True Heart was a little bit not quite as social, but I don't really know this. You know, you know, from the side, I also listened to hundreds of oral histories, you know, by sidemen, other people on the scene. Um, and True Heart, unfortunately, he part of why we don't hear about him so much, he also died of tuberculosis in the early 40s. And, it, you know, because it was kind of like, what happened to him, you know? Um, and at the same uh, sanitarium in, uh, in Staten Island off of Manhattan that uh, the great guitarist Charlie Christian uh, spent his last days there. So it's just so sad, you know, and there was a certain point um, when the band really started getting, you know, was doing great, you know, the a turning point year, Ella had been with the band about a year in 1936, and they're really getting a lot of radio play, they're really getting a lot of attention, they're starting to tour more. And then uh, John Trueheart had to take a break to go to because of tuberculosis. So he had to go, he was in a sanitarium in upstate New York for almost two years. So, you know, uh, and he came back just as the band was like totally national stars, you know, so it's just such a, you know, it's kind of part, another heartbreaking part of the story, but he got to be with Chick through thick and thin. And, yeah. and some, you know, and that's really something. But I do want to say that, you know, Chick was no goody goody. I, yeah, <laughs> I no, he, he was. He was, <laughs> he, he, he was really ambitious. You know, he was really wanted the reputation that Cab already had, that Duke had. He wanted the recognition, and he fought for it. You know, I kind of feel like he just wasn't going to let anything get him down. Definitely not. Let's hear our next song. This is I'll Chase the Blues Away, featuring Ella Fitzgerald. I'll laugh and sing all day. I found my lover, someone who'll be true. The bluebirds in the trees will sing their song to me, or they'll discover I'm no longer blue. I've traveled far in search of someone And that was I'll Chase the Blues Away with Chick Webb's band featuring Ella Fitzgerald. And, and you picked this song out and, and, and you really point out that Ella was a step ahead. She was a new evolution that the singers Chick had before were, uh, you know, crooners in the in the Bing Crosby mold. Um, 
and that Ella brought the swing to it. And so often now we look back at Ella as one of the great bebop improvisationists, you know, the one, and also uh, one of the people I think, along with Frank Sinatra and Archie Shaw, uh, of the people who created the Great American Songbook. I mean, she didn't write it, but but that that you know canonize these are the songs that constitute the great american songbook but really when you listen to her young and with chick she's just this pop phenomenon she's absolutely on the cutting edge of dance music and pop at that point in time and and that is also an accomplishment and i think something that we uh, should 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 re- remember and revere but another figure that that's a big factor in chick webb's life is duke ellington and you, you mentioned mm. that duke inspired Chick to be a band leader, basically ordered Chick to be a band leader and, and took a commission. But he also poached a lot of Chick's talent. And some of Duke's, you know, we, we you think of early Duke Ellington, and of course you think of, of Bubber Miley, but after Bubber Miley burned out, he needed new talent and he just poached it from Chick Webb's band. He, he got both Cootie Williams and Johnny Hodges away from Chick. Right. Tell us about that dynamic between the two band well, leaders. Yeah, I mean, I want to say uh, those to me are just really um, incredible little instances of of Chick as a band leader. Uh, so Johnny Hodges played with the Harlem Stompers and that ad I just referred to in 1927, where you see the whole band, Johnny Hodges is in that picture. And um, as a saxophonist who went on to great fame with Duke Ellington and one of the most revered alto saxophonists for decades. And Cootie Williams um, came into the band a little later. Hodges had already gone with Duke. Um, and uh, I really describe um, Cootie Williams's, you know, arrival in New York because to me, you know, I I get into several of the stories of how do people end up with Chick? You know, it's so crazy. Uh, Cootie Williams was a young trumpet player. He was from Mobile, Alabama. Then he ends up, you know, kind of recognized at a very young age for his musicianship gets to play with a couple of bands, ends up with kind of a really good working band in Miami. And they get heard on the radio <laughs> by um, by someone who brings them to New York. Or first they bring them to Brooklyn. It's like the same uh, person who was very uh, fundamental in building up the ballroom world in New York, I.J. Fagan. He had a place, he ran the place in Brooklyn called the Rosemont Ballroom. So Cootie's first job in New York was at, in Brooklyn. Um, and he, you know, it's like he and a great clarinetist, Edmund Hall, who was older than him, he kind of watched out for him, were like, they didn't know where they were, you know, so they were <laughs> thinking, isn't there a scene somewhere we're supposed to be? And here we are, you know, kind of living over a bakery, eating, you know, rolls for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So someone said, oh, no, 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 you got to go to Harlem here, take this train, go over here. So they do, and they quickly find, you know, there's really a nexus of clubs in what was, you know, considered at the time, that was central Harlem, where there was, you know, not only the Lafayette was the big theater there, the Apollo really didn't come into its own as we know it as the Apollo until uh, 1934, 35, um, when Ella won her first challenge contest in the fall of 34. But you know, their Savoy was already like, you know, an institution in Harlem. So, uh, and, but all these little clubs, like you can still walk around that neighborhood. There's all these brownstones saying, you know, they are incredibly intact, some of these blocks. But, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so, James B. Johnson lived over here for a while. There's some plaques, you know. <laughs> I kind of feel like, oh, my next crusade should be getting a plaque on some of the houses where Chick lived that are still standing. But so you could go from one club to another. And that, you know, that was kind of how Chick started getting a reputation. That's how Cootie, you know, kind of went to some jazz jam session. And and one Chick, one Chick's buddy said, Chick, you got to go hear this kid. You know, and it's like, you can imagine, I mean, I sort of take a lot of imaginary leaps <laughs> writing this book, you know, that like, here he is, he doesn't have much, but he has a room in Harlem with John Trueheart. He gets a few gigs. He's able to play at the Savoy for some of these really big deal band battles already in the late 20s. So 
against Chet Fletcher Henderson, King Oliver's band, you know, some of the other, you know, big, big players on the scene, Duke, Duke Ellington, but that was came a little later. And um, so he's, you know, he, he's a hot shot, whether he's working or not, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? He has stature, he has status. So, so, you know, one of his, you've got to hear Cootie, you've got to hear Cootie. So he goes to hear Cootie and he was so knocked out and Cootie was younger than him by a few years. He's like, come on, you're going to, you're going to be in my band. You're going to, you can live here. So they go get his stuff <laughs> from, from this house, you know, rooming house in Brooklyn and, and uh, Cootie's involved. You know, I would say he was with Chick. 1928 probably for about a year and chick you know it's like he took chances on people but he was also you know really generous if somebody could get a better job that was more uh, how it went with duke you know he wasn't going to stop them and in fact he even encouraged them and one of the one of uh, chick's great soloist who was you know on the scene then too and i think you know, sometimes you, you'd hear about, you know, eight of them sharing two rooms, you know, during the worst years of the Depression, uh, said that um, Chick and Johnny, they didn't really want to go to Duke. They loved Chick Webb so much, you know, because he was, you know, I think he was just inspiring, you know, he was, and he was all about music. He was all about what's the latest trend, how are we going to do this, how are we going to craft the sound, you know, but finally, as um, somebody else on the scene said, well, I can't pay my rent, play with Chick Webb, so, you know, gotta go. <laughs> but um, they all remain, remain friends, you know, so I, I, I kind of feel like um, Duke uh, really gave Chick an opportunity, because he, when he was, this was still pre-Cotton Club, he had a little bit, the Washingtonians in Midtown, and his, you know, uh, playing in these, you know, basement speakeasy, he's really had a following. Um, I I want to say, you know, these are both colorful but dangerous times. Uh, these clubs were run by gangsters. Some of this was not pretty. Uh, but um, uh, one of the other saxophones on the scene, Charlie Holmes, he used to say, it wasn't so bad playing for gangsters. You know, if you played what they want, they just like throw money at you, you know. So <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so there, there was that kind of life. But Chick, I really think, uh, I don't think he ever knew you know i don't hear reading about oh yes i always wanted to be a band leader it's more like he wanted to be a good drummer he wanted to get the best gigs and as he grew into this role of being a band leader he took chances on so many people who became you know just pivotal to all this music we know and love so one of my other favorite stories is uh chick's hiring of mario bowser Yep. Uh, the, and let me play our, yeah. our next song and then I want to come back and talk about Mario Bowser and, and Chick's okay. overall legacy and influence. But this is FDR Jones, once again featuring oh, okay. Ella Fitzgerald and, and just a testimony to the to the political happenings of the late nineteen thirty. Chick Webb featuring Ella Fitzgerald doing FDR Jones. And that's just a song that to me sums up their, the cultural ferment that's going on. The, the African-Americans are switching from the Republican Party, the Democratic Party under the leadership of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And just taking a leading role in the cultural discussion of the day. I know that my mother, who was, you know, a, a white woman from Oklahoma, cotton picker, um, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Ella Fitzgerald were the two artists that she would talk about as her favorite wow. singers. And, and that's not something that happened in her parents' generation and, and, and a big part of, of, of changing America and hopefully for the better. But you brought up Mario Bowser and we've talked about uh, Louis Jordan, the father of R&B, who is a, a member of, of Chip Club's fan. But Mario Bowser is probably just as important. Who's Mario Bowser? What was his long term impact and how did Chick Webb mentor him? 
yeah, and same thing. Mario came into the band earlier than um, than Louis Jordan. And one thing I just before you know before we forget about it is you just were mentioning the politics of the time, changing you know uh, changing situations. Um, yeah, Dick and Ella did do a couple of topical songs. One was called "Vote for Mr. Rhythm." That was in yep. fall of 1936, an election year. You know, it's like they really tapped into. Uh, that sentiment. But along with that, the Savoy Ballroom was not just the home of happy feet. You know, so during the darkest years of the economic depression, you know, in the earlier 30s up till 36 even, you know, uh, it was, there were benefits for, you know, the Scottsboro Boys Defense Fund, for hunger relief, for children's hospital funds, for children's summer camp funds, for John Brown Memorial in upstate New York, for the Spanish Civil War, you know, and Chick Webb um, took part in many of these benefits. Um, and so did others on the scene. You know, he wasn't the only one, but it was just kind of, that's what it did you know it was like part of that their world uh they wanted to give back i think chick was someone that did um end up you know really wanting to help his community um ella was always you know always uh lifelong responsive to children's causes and um helping out kids so you know there is there is that side of the savoy that i didn't want to leave out of the picture but Very back important. to Mario, you know, back to Mario, he um, Webb hired him in 1933, and Mario uh, had been a clarinet prodigy in Cuba, uh, and uh, but started playing in some of the Havana nightclubs because he just they all heard Duke Ellington on the radio too, and jazz on the radio that managed to be able to be heard in Cuba, and he and some of his friends were like, gotta go to New York. You know, they were young and talented and ambitious. And Mario um, came and um, I've I, I I, got to read the book. There's so much detail in there about <laughs> who he stayed with. But other, you know, Latin bands that were already part of the New York scene. You know, and there was a band, um, the Santo Domingans, that was actually one of the alternate bands at the Savoy Ballroom in the early 30s when Chick was finally, finally had the house band job. And uh, I believe that Mario eventually started playing with that band. And one of his friends in that band knew that, oh, Chick has an opening for trumpet. You ought to go audition. And, and it, you know, he was quite uh, nervous about it, but he got talked into it. And um, so the auditions, you know, again, to me, it's like, well, when you think of an audition, you think it's in the middle of the daytime, you know, <laughs> or you, it, usually if you're auditioning for a band, you're, you play with the band, you know, you they give you a night. But this was like after hours, after kick off and rehearse after hours. So like one o'clock in the morning with the band. And then, uh, you know, so he pulls Mario into this and they ended up rehearsing just by themselves. And Chick would, um, you know, more, or a pianist, you know, play something on the piano and tell Mario, I want you to phrase it like this. I want you to, let's hear you do this. Let's hear you do that. And they did this for a couple of nights. And Chick just said, Mario, you're the man for me. I really want you to be in my band. And Mario was like, I don't know. <laughs> it was so he, but he, he said, uh, Chick said something like, look, you just take all the advice I'm giving you musically. You do all the things I said, you will be just fine in my band. And, and that was it. And that was actually one of the greatest uh, periods of, of Chick Webb's band pre-Ella, you know, so Edgar Sampson was in the band. I think uh, Jeff Jordan was in the band, you know, it was a really solid band. That was really when Edgar Sampson's arrangements were sort of really getting a lot of attention. And uh, that's when they, they recorded uh, in 1934, the band's theme song, Let's Get Together. Savoy and all these, you know, fake tunes that were, became kind of anthems of the swing era when picked up by uh, Benny Goodman and others. 
And I wish we had more time. This has been a delight. My guest has been Stephanie Stein Kreese. The book is Rhythm Man, Chick Webb, and the Beat That Changed America. Stephanie, thanks so much for writing the book and 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 burnishing Chick's legacy and, and coming on the show. Well, thank you. I hope I answered at least some of your questions. Oh, it was great. I, I, I love your enthusiasm. I love hearing these stories. And I just can't I just can't talk about Chick Webb enough. I just love the guy oh, and music. Uh, has really been invigorating to me. And, and, you know, the more I learn, the more important it's obvious that he was. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And thank you for having me. It's really been a delight, you know, and uh, it's been a great pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ned Sublet kick off a new Latin Roll miniseries. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.